0: Hey, I'm picking back up where I left off here from a couple weeks ago in the series of building a godly home, uh, and I think I said this at the beginning, but maybe it, it, it's worth repeating. Um, a lot of, of what I'm trying to communicate here um, stems out of uh, the the sermon series that we're in with Nehemiah. As, as we're talking about Nehemiah, he's he's rebuilding the wall. He's, he's rallying the people of Jerusalem to construct this massive wall, and... Um, and in the same way, God's calling us as Christians to build something, to build the kingdom of heaven. Um, by His grace, through the work of the power of the Spirit, um, that's what we're called to do. And a lot of times, I, I just sense that maybe we we hear that and say, yeah, it sounds nice, but everything seems sort of theoretical. Um, we talk about building the kingdom of heaven, and it's just, you know, you're waiting for like the clouds to settle and, and the little angels, the cherubim, to come through with their little harps and stuff, and... You know all the sparkly, clean, shimmering of heaven. I don't know. I'm just just like where your imagination goes, I guess. And you're left thinking that that's that must be what advancing the kingdom or building the kingdom of heaven is like, um, and really what it looks like as ordinary life done to the glory of God. And so that's kind of what I've been trying to get after here is like here's here's the assignment that you have if you are if you're a Christian and you're you find yourself married. Um, specifically thinking of in household terms, whether you're you're married or pursuing marriage, um, desirous of that, uh, or God's given you a family, uh, some children to raise up in the, the fear and admonition of the Lord, then that's what the Lord has already assigned to you. Um, he, he's already shown you the section of the wall that is yours to build. At least that is the primary focus of, of raising, of building a godly family. And so... Um, We've, we've talked about the layers of this so far. First you go through this personal responsibility that, that each individual member of the household has a responsibility uh, to, to see to their own discipleship, specifically thinking of adults um, who have the, the bandwidth for that sort of a thing. Um, and then it goes out from there, from from the individual into the the uh, relational spider web of, of marriage, of your spouse, and then of your children. And then uh, beyond that, if, if you don't just have a nuclear family... In your household, um, but but maybe a multi generational setup, then then it goes beyond uh, just your spouse and your children onto those as well, taking care of of those folks, um, and then from there uh, it, it moves out uh, from from the home into the church and from the church into the city. And so I'm coming back around to uh, talking about marriage, and um, and I, I last time I talked on marriage, I think this is in part two. Um, I talked about marriage from from the creation perspective of of God designing, creating, ordaining marriage to be between one man, one woman, and what it kind of looks like. How how uh, God gave Adam the man uh, a a mission, and and then He gave the woman to the man to help him to be a helpmate in the mission and and so we get getting, getting after some of the uh the complementarian versus egalitarian stuff and and I don't want to necessarily rehash that but that's certainly going to be something that carries overtones throughout all of the rest of the discussion um, because it all goes back to sort of the creation order of of marriage and what God's design was at the beginning and how it maintains through that but I want to continue on with the discussion of marriage and, and get into more specifics or some more qualities of, of a godly marriage kind of um, kind of get it into, I don't know, kind of bring it into the living room, if you will, uh, of what of what marks a, a godly marriage and, and, uh, and how that those things, those characteristics in a godly marriage will lend itself to uh, building a godly home. Uh, and so I've got four of them to talk about. At least I've got four written down. Who knows where we'll go from here? I never really know. Um, but the first one is uh, it's a good starting point. Um, a, a godly marriage will be between two Christians— um, a Godly marriage, we're, we're told in Scripture that that uh, Christians are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is second Corinthians chapter 4. Um, the Apostle Paul is writing to them, helping them sort of navigate uh, this new Christian life that they've, they've experienced, and, and what sort of the ground rules are. And he's talking about these partnerships, um, both in the context of marriage and in business. He, he said, Don't, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Biel." or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of god with idols for we are the temple of the living god and so the apostle paul's getting right after it there now uh, i i realize that this is uh most helpful at the uh, in the pre-engagement phase. All right, so uh, if if you're out there, you're single and you're looking for possible suitors. Well, if you're a Christian, then the only uh, the the number one criteria uh, of your future spouse is that they would be a Christian, um, and not just a Christian by title or a Christian in the sense that they go to church or have gone to church or or even own a Bible, but in the sense that they have had a, uh, a, a life-changing uh, encounter uh, with Jesus. They're a legitimate Christian, that they understand... Um, the the foundational aspects of Christianity of of faith in Jesus and His atoning work through the cross, His life, death, resurrection, uh, and what it means for us that we now have new life in Christ when we repent of our sins, and and repentance being something that's an ongoing thing, not just this one time I say a prayer and and I've done my repenting for my lifetime, uh, but somebody who who walks in faith. And repentance, as as Martin Luther says, is they're both two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance. It's this ongoing thing. It's the sum of the Christian life. Uh, And so the person that you're looking for ought to be somebody that that is that. Now, with that, hopefully they're connected to a local church um, where they have some spiritual oversight. Um, there maybe a church member that would be a good good move, um, to to see that they they know what it means to be in submission to, uh, godly men that that God has placed to lead the church, um, so that that would be a good indicator if you're looking for a suitor. Um, the same thing is said actually earlier on too in First uh, Corinthians seven when the Apostle Paul is speaking of the wives uh, of of widows remarrying. He says that they need to marry in the Lord. Um, that, that means like, if, if by my faith in Jesus, I am in him, right? We talk about the union we have with Christ. That's something that we just never, we, we don't leave that behind. It's something that always comes up. Um, but we have union in Christ, and because I have union with Christ, and that person has union with Christ, we are married in the Lord. We are marrying in the Lord. So that person has the same same kind of faith. Now, if you want to go to a, a perfect illustration of this, of, of why it's so essential, To have uh, a a marriage that is equally yoked um, in the sense that uh, they're both believers. You want to go to Jesus when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Now marriage is—you're building a life together. That's what's going on in marriage. Marriage. Um, and you have to have a foundation in order to build a house to build a, to build a marriage there has to be a foundation Now if you're a Christian, your foundation is in Christ, but your partner is bringing sand into the equation whether it's whether it's secular humanism or, or, or any other kind of religion um, that's not Orthodox Christianity, a, a Bible believing Christian then it's like adding a bunch of extra sand and water to the concrete. So, so that way, when you go to build your life together, the foundation isn't uh, as stable as you think it is. Um, and conflict comes or hardship comes or trial or persecution or just famine or whatever it might be that comes and shakes up and rattles the storms of life, as Jesus says, when the storm comes. It's not if the storm comes, but when the storm comes. The wise man who has his house built on the rock is, his his house endures, um, but the one that's built on the s- sand, uh, his house collapses in. Now, th- the idea here also applies that that if if your life is built on anything other than the rock, so Jesus plus something else, then that is a a compromised foundation. And so it's so essential that uh, to to be married for the long haul, that you are, you find yourself yoked to a a Christian who shares your deep uh Christian convictions. Now this this will also spill out into other things. So not just matters of salvation, not just matters of, you know, I know where I'm going when I I I die. Um, but how are you going to how are you going to steward your finances? In fact, that's one of the biggest things, uh, arguments that that married couples tend to to run into. It's arguments about finances. How how are you going to use your finances? One of you is a spender, one of you is a saver, one of you is generous, one of you is more stingy. How are you going to figure out uh it what you're going to do as a unit um especially if you don't have the scriptures to guide you and to lead you into any direction right if if your spouse doesn't have a regard for the the word of god then then it's going to be sort of uh who can who can who can yell the loudest is the one who typically wins or who can be the most uh persuasive that's the one who typically wins um, and so there has to be this foundation of we're building our house upon the rock we're building our house upon the Word of God, our marriage is founded upon the Word of God, and in fact, that the Word of God testifies to the new life, the salvation that we have found in Christ, and how we ought to structure and order our lives uh, for the rest of our days. Now, there's another piece of this where the, I know that there are, are are men and women who have married, um, and they have not married in the Lord. Um, or another scenario where you have a, a marriage that's unequally yoked would be that— um, you you both you get married and you're both unbelievers when you get married or just nominal Christians not something that you really hold close to your heart but but somebody got saved somebody had a a conversion uh, where the faith uh be where the faith the Christian faith becomes such a, a huge part of their life uh, but the other person the other partner has not had that um, be it husband or a wife had that kind of experience and so you have uh, either a uh, a man who has um. Had a conversion experience, and his wife is maybe resistant to Christianity, and or vice versa, where the wife has had a conversion experience, and the husband is resistant to uh, Jesus, and so you you have these certain things. Now, uh, here's here's circling back to this this complementarian this headship piece. Uh, if you are a husband, um, you are called to lead your family uh, as the covenant head to understand the word of God to bring them in. To the covenant family. Now, you can't save your wife. You can't. There's no magic potion to get her to to believe the gospel. But I do know, statistically speaking, um, that when husbands are the one who are um, leading the family to church, when they're the ones that are driving the decision to go to church, to be involved in a local church, um, to make Sundays a priority, small group a priority. Nine, I, I, oh, I'm making up numbers here, but it, it's a high, um, it's a high statistic, high percentage of time of the time that the family will eventually come to share the same faith convictions, not just by pr- merely profession, but actually from a heart orientation. That's how God intends to use the husband, um, the head of the h- household, to lead the family in a Godward direction. That is God's grace uh, to His people that He would do that. Now He, we were given seen other examples in Scripture of how um, a wife is to win her husband over, because she doesn't have that same sort of headship responsibility. Um, and Scripture warns against being a nag and and uh, imposing um, or being uh, irritating in a way that would actually drive the husband away from Christ. Instead, it says, uh, "...to have a humble and gentle spirit, to win him over by your conduct and through your prayers." Um, and so there are, are um, concessions that are made for scenarios where uh, the marriage is not equally yoked, but to, to have a godly marriage— Um, it is essential to marry in the Lord. That's the first thing. And and so to see both of these people um, engaging in their union with Jesus on a daily basis of of engaging through Scripture, um, in the local church, of all of the other aspects um, of a a vital church member. So um, that's the first trait, is that a godly marriage uh, means a marriage in the Lord. Now two, uh, the second thing, second trait of a, a godly marriage, um, is that each spouse loves Jesus more than their spouse. That might sound counterintuitive because husbands and wives are meant to to have a, a strong love, right? A, a sacrificial love towards one another, one that that um, mirrors Christ in the church, where the husband lays his life down like Christ lays his life down for the for the church, and the wife surrenders her rights as she she submits. To Christ, uh, and and the wife does the same to her husband, and so we see this sort of sacrificial, the self giving love, um, respectively in, in a masculine and a feminine way, um, and so there is this high representation of love. There's a strong love um, in in marriage, um, but what's crucial is that each partner, each spouse. Um, loves Jesus more than the person that they're married to. And I mean, it's not in the terms of a competition where the husband says, well, I love Jesus more than you do, but in in saying that in the hierarchy of, of my loves, the things that I love most, number one, I love my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, number two, I love my wife, or, or the wife says, number one, I love Jesus Christ, number two, I love my husband. you love Jesus? Jesus is the one, the chief love uh, that you have in your life. Now, the reason for this is, as we love Jesus, as our hearts are fixed to Jesus, as we love him in and the reason that we love him is because he first loved us, um, is because uh, in that, in Christ's love, we find the ability to love others in the way that Christ loves us. So if you're trying to love your spouse... Um, by your own bandwidth, by your own sort of emotional efforts, uh, or or whatever that is, that whatever whatever love you can muster up, um, it, it's going to pale in comparison to the kind of love that you receive from Christ, and then and that moves through you as a conduit uh, to love your spouse. Now, when we love our spouse more than we love Jesus, when our, our loves get disordered, um, and, and it's maybe number one is my spouse, and number two three two is my kids, number three is Jesus, or Jesus gets maybe he. he you love Jesus more than your kids, or whatever. What happens is that whatever takes that spot above above Jesus is now bearing the weight of your soul, um, and and your spouse wasn't made. To be able to handle the full weight of your life, the full weight of your expectations, they are not designed to have all of that weight, all of that expectation placed upon them. So, so in loving your spouse as number one, you're actually going to choke them out with all your expectations, uh, with with what you're looking to get from them, uh, whether it's a sense of validation. Well, the, and the reason why it's like, well, we go to Jesus to get our validation in the gospel, um, because there we find. We're uh, we're worse than we ever thought, but more level than we ever dare to dream. So we find our, our validation, we find uh, our acceptance, we find all of the things that actually make us whole and complete in Christ. Before we turn to our spouse uh, to to give us those things, and so if you're going to your spouse instead of Jesus to get those things, there's unrealistic expectations. You're gonna start. You're gonna um, suffocate your marriage in a way that that will not uh, lead to your flourishing, nor to the flourishing of your spouse, and and this brings us to um, the third fixture, uh, the third piece um, is that in a godly marriage, forgiveness must flow, um, because there will be times where you your loves get disordered. Either you put your spouse. Uh, above Jesus, right, and they feel the the weight of that, and th- that's a sin against them. Um, that that's an idolatry scenario where your your marriage, your spouse, your wife, your husband, whoever it is, um, get, gets placed above. It's a good thing that gets elevated to the status of a god thing, as Tim Keller uses that to define what an idol is. Um, and and so either we we elevate our spouse to a position that they just can't shoulder the weight of it. Or we let other things take... Um, take the 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 next sort of tier. So maybe Jesus is number one, and then in my comfort is next, or 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 uh, my job, or money, or whatever it might be, or even kids. That's that's one that happens a lot, where uh, the there's a flip uh, between your spouse and your kids, where you love your your kids more than you love your spouse. That doesn't follow the biblical order for for what love looks like um, in in a godly home. And so, um, it's really essential to. To have uh, your spouse in the right spot um, on the order of your loves. Um, and when you, you don't have them placed correctly, it's important that we, we confess our sins, that we say, hey, I've realized. Um, that I'm 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 expecting too much from you, and it's not a slight to you that you're not able to you know do anything. It's just God has not designed you uh, to be able to provide what I'm looking for, uh, and so I feel that I've been that putting too much weight on you. Um, and I, I'm repenting of that, and I'm turning to Jesus to find what I'm looking for. That, that's, that's an example of what confession uh, and repentance would look like. And then, and then with that, um, that, that then gets met by forgiveness, that, that whatever, whoever the spouse is that— um, that has been sinned against or is experiencing that sort of friction, um, to be generous with forgiveness, remembering that in Christ we have been fully forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, uh, or so are our sins removed from us. Though our sins were like scarlet, they've been made whiter than snow. That's the kind of thorough forgiveness that we receive from Christ and because uh, because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church and the way that Jesus loves and forgives the bride, marriage should be just this this um, ecosystem of forgiveness and grace and mercy, right? Where where there's a constant flow. So so when we see our loves disordered, there needs to be this repentance and faith that happens. Uh, but then also moving into more like the the life uh, daily life grind where uh, tempers are short, um, where where frustration and agitation. Um, and uh, relational complexities set in and 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 where we feel certain ways that uh, that compel us to act uh, in ways that are not Christ-like or not godly ways, um, where we sense that. We need to, to be quick to um, repent of our sins, um, to confess those things to our spouse, and then that, that spouse ought to forgive as they have been forgiven, just as we pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so the Christian who has received the grace and forgiveness of Jesus ought to be the one who's forgiving uh, generously. And this this does not mean that you let your spouse walk all over you, right? We're going back to the personal responsibility thing where... Um, that hopefully they're taking responsibility for their own discipleship, their walk with Jesus, that they're in pursuit of godliness, they're they're walking uh, according to God's word. Um, so that does not out- permit this sort of uh, get off free card, right? That would not be a honoring approach to the Lord or to your spouse. Um, but you are living. This is what marriage essentially is. It's it's two sinners committing to li- live together forever um, until they die, right? And so because you live with a sinner. Because you're you're in a relationship with another sinner, there is going to be sin. It shouldn't catch us off guard. Um, we should expect it, right? Um, that my sin is going to affect the other person, and their sin is going to affect me. And and, and when sin arises, we're not left. Uh, without the resource to do anything about it. We're not left with anything that, that can can bring us out of the sinful state. We're, we're given the gifts of confession and repentance uh, and forgiveness that we would be able to be restored in relationship to one another um, and, and go deeper into that relationship together. And so it's it's essential in a godly marriage— that forgiveness would flow; that we would let forgiveness flow uh, to our spouse in the same way that Christ's forgiveness flows towards us as we confess and repent of our sins. So, and that's going to bring us to our fourth and final trait of a godly marriage for today. Again, this is this is by no means an exhaustive list, and and I I hope you give me a little bit of, of grace here as I, I lay some of these things out, um, because really I, I could go into—there uh, there have been volumes of books written on this. Um, in fact, actually, let me make a, a book recommendation right now while I'm on the topic. Um, and, and some of this stuff is actually coming from this books that have jogged my, my thoughts. Um, it, it's a book by Pastor Toby Sumter, um, called No Mere Mortals. Um, it's a book that uh, is, is riffing off C.S. Lewis's idea uh, that there's no such thing as a mere mortal, that, that those that we marry are going to be eternal creatures. Um, and, and what we do now carries significance uh, into the future. What we do now in marriage significance uh, carries significance into eternity, uh, and so this is why marriage matters. This is why uh, we spend time working on our marriage, giving ourselves uh, to improving our marriage so we can be a better spouse uh, and enjoy the fruits and the blessings of, of that. Um, and one of the chief blessings, to bring it to number four, is—and I'll give you a moment here, if there's kids listening and you don't want this stuff to come up in the car— Press pause. Here's your warning. Five, four, three, two, one. Surprise. One of the greatest blessings of marriage is sex. And not just the act of sex, but the fact that sex itself is a gift-bearing gift. So in a godly marriage, there is going to be a... a frequent enjoyment. And that word frequent is subjective. Okay. There's going to be some flexibility here. I'm not, I don't want to be legalistic and put out a, a hard number, um, but it should not be a, an occasional gift that's enjoyed. Um, And there may be, let me add this caveat too, because I know that there may be seasons of life, there might be health reasons or health uh, uh, inconveniences that that make this harder to enjoy. So there is a caveat, there is grace uh, with some of those things. But overall, generally speaking, sex is a gift that ought to be enjoyed frequently. That is one of the greatest gifts that God has given uh, man and wife, uh, to enjoy one another, to, to be naked and unashamed. That's one of the only contexts um, that we can experience that naked and unashamed feeling that Adam and Eve had back in the garden Um, in, in the fallen world, is with your spouse, because... It, In marriage, you've already done with your entire life what then you do with your bodies and sex, right? You've already shared all of life. You've already shared your finances. You've already shared your heartache. You've already shared your vision, your dreams. You've already shared your values. All of these things, your shared faith, um, all of these things are already shared, which makes it easy to then share your body uh, with your spouse, and this is one of the reasons why there's such a, a high emphasis in the Christian world about saving yourself for your spouse. So um, there, there, there are a lot of biblical um, exhortations of uh, refraining from adultery, of, of, of refraining from premarital sex, of refraining from sex that is not with your covenant partner. Um, because what happens in that is Paul says it like this. He says that you are being joined together by that other person. Now, in that sense, uh, it's—and he even uses stronger language uh, when he's speaking to the Corinthians about prostitutes and and whatnot, but he's saying you're being joined together uh, by— uh, by that sexual act to that other person um, but you're being joined together in a false kind of a way because all of the other adjoining all of the other covenant pieces all of the other emotional relational pieces that make marriage work are not in place and so the, the mere sexual attraction the more, mere physical act of sex is not enough to sustain that kind of a relationship and it actually compound a lot of brokenness and this is why um, there's a lot of difficulty and creates um, a lot of challenge in marriages where uh, one partner or both partners have been promiscuous before, um, there, there is a lot of insecurity, there's a lot of, of sin and shame and baggage that comes along with that. And one of the reasons why Christian parents, specifically by parents right now, um, ought to uh, be discipling our children towards abstinence until they are married is because of the gift that it is to be able to give their spouse... On their wedding night, of, of of an undefiled self, sexually speaking, um, and so that is a huge gift um, for for couples who get to enjoy that. It's a huge blessing, um, and and even in the case where that, that's not uh, what happened, where, where maybe there has been some promiscuity um, beforehand, God God does supply grace. Um, and he does bring healing to sexual brokenness and sexual sin. It, it doesn't mean that uh, you're 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 wasted or or whatever. nothing like that. Uh, the grace of Christ can mend us and make us whole um, and, and even in our sexual life that is is the case. Um, but in marriage, the gift of sex is a great gift meant to be enjoyed. Um, a lot and frequently. In fact, Paul says, uh, he says, listen, don't don't abstain from sex unless it's by intention, um, except for a short amount of time. And you've got to agree on what the, the length of time is in advance, and then you have to come back together and, and have these marital relations so that the enemy cannot get in and, and create disruption and temptation uh, in your lives. And then so ransack your marriage, because a lot of times uh, one of the—there there are several leading causes to divorce, but one of the the top three um is is because of adultery where there has not been this regular intimacy um, there not has been there has not been the the regular physical connection that that sex uh, enables um, and and I, I understand that there are a lot of, of nuances here there's a lot of different things that we can uh, take into account and, and I'm just wanting to speak about things from a general perspective uh, for the time being um, but one of the things that that's going to mark a, a godly Christian marriage is the enjoyment of the gift that is sex. Now, I said that sex is both a gift, but it is a gift-bearing gift, meaning that sex is meant to make babies. Um, and so a godly marriage will have, in view, understanding the commission that God has given Adam and Eve, which carries down through all peoples, through all times of, of go be fruitful and multiply, that there should be a, a, a heart for having children. And uh, a desire to reproduce um, or to to establish a family and that could be biologically i realize that there are some people that cannot do that biologically and so one method is to um to think of the church as an extension of of your household now obviously you can't steal people's kids uh, because god's god's commissioned the uh those parents to take care of those kids but but there is a way to partner with parents in the discipleship of their kids in more than just a uh, give a kid a high five in the hallway at church on Sunday morning kind of a way. There's a way to be engaged in that way and thinking uh, covenantally in the household of God. Um, but there are other ways to, to build your own household, um, to to have a family. Uh, there's adoption, you can do foster care. Um, there's all all kinds of, of ways to go about this. But I think that uh, to have the heart of Christ, to understand what marriage is for, why God gave us marriage, the gift of sex being a, a gift-bearing gift, uh, we should have in Christian marriage Godly marriages, a desire to see children be reared, to see children, this next generation produced, um, this 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 heritage continued on from us. Um, and so, uh, again, I know that this is a tricky topic, and there's some um, nuances here and there that that need to be addressed by a a uh, situational basis. But generally speaking, as a matter of of general rule. Christian godly marriages are going to have a desire to see God give the blessing, that is, children. And so those are some of, uh, I guess, four four characteristics of a godly marriage— um, four things that, that keep God in view, that keep the gospel in view, that honor the Imago Dei uh, in in your spouse, um, that that put the gospel of Jesus and forgiveness on display, and also celebrate the good gifts that God gives His people. So there there are four. I guess that that the last one was basically fourth with a bonus one of of, of a desire for children being part of a a godly household. So there you have it. That's part three. Of building a godly home, um, and we are going to be back at it again. We're going to start moving into more of the specifics of of what a a covenant headship looks like, um, family headship looks like, and what it looks like for um, wives and children to submit underneath of that uh, to the glory of God. So that's coming up. Let me know your thoughts your questions as you are processing this with me um i want to be able to address those things and if i've missed something i want to be able to go back around um, and provide clarity to help you best because that's what this is about is is helping to equip uh, the people of sacred city church to live out of our gospel identities and rhythms and uh and i guess to use the language of nehemiah to work on the wall that god's put in front of us so hope you have a good rest of your week god bless you i will see you on sunday as we gather for worship